This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance by Henry Nouwen. In my home country, the Netherlands, you still see many large wagon wheels, not on wagons, but as decorations at the entrances of farms or on the walls of restaurants. I have always been fascinated by these wagon wheels, with their wide rims, strong wooden spokes, and big hubs. These wheels help me to understand the importance of a life lived from the center. When I move along the rim, I can reach one spoke after the other, but when I stay at the hub, I am in touch with all the spokes at once. To pray is to move to the center of all life and all love. The closer I come to the hub of life, the closer I come to all that receives its strength and energy from there. My tendency is to get so distracted by the diversity of the many spokes of life that I am busy, but not truly life-giving, all over the place, but not confused. By directing my attention to the heart of life, I am connected with all its rich variety while remaining centered. What does the hub represent? I think of it as my own heart, the heart of God, and the heart of the world. When I pray, I enter into the depth of my own heart, and I find there the heart of God, who speaks to me of love. And I recognize, right there, the place where all of my sisters and brothers are in communion with one another. The great paradox of the spiritual life is, indeed, that the most personal is the most universal, that the most intimate is the most communal, and that the most contemplative is the most active. The wagon wheel shows that the hub is the center of all energy and movement, even when it often seems not to be moving at all. In God, all action and rest are one. So to prayer. Now a reading of scripture from Micah 6, 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills, the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be heartily fed. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in the heavens is great. And in this way did they persecute the prophets before you. And in addition to our scripture reading this morning, I have a poem from a refugee, which is as a word of scripture to us this morning. Written by a 14-year-old from Sudan. The actual moment of exile is like an illness. You are ill with rage. To each family, it means closing the door on friends, culture, your native, fam- your native country. One year is an exile compared to 10 years. 10 years means nothing in the history of the country, but for a human being, it is a long time. For a child, a lifetime. Some of us, we're born in refugee camps. Peace is round the corner. What I call home, though, will still be another exile because I don't know home. What an irony to become a refugee. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. The story is told of a rich industrialist from the north who was horrified to find a fisherman from the south laying lazily beside his boat and smoking a pipe. Why aren't you out fishing? said the industrialist. Well, because I've caught enough fish for the day, said the fisherman. Well, why don't you catch more fish? said this rich man. What would I do with them? asked the fisherman. Well, then you could sell them and fix a motor to your boat and go out into even deeper waters and catch more fish. And then you could save up and buy a nylon net. And soon you could save up and buy a second boat, maybe even a fleet of boats. And then you'll be a rich man like me. Fisherman asks, well, what would I do then? The industrialist says, then you could enjoy life. The fisherman sits back and says, what do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) Every society operates on a set of values or assumed values, a set of assumptions, if you will. What are some of the assumptions or values that the industrialist held to in the story that we just heard? 
satisfactory. Wealth is satisfactory. Work ethic. Okay, busy is better, right? Growth is good. Growth is good. Absolutely. Money will buy you happiness. Money will buy you happiness. Very good, very good. Well, what other assumptions or values do you see at work in our society right now? You have to own your own home. Have to own your own home, okay. The American way. American dream, okay. There isn't enough for everybody, so I have to protect my own. There isn't enough for everybody, so I have to protect my own. Different is bad. Different is bad, yeah. But familiar is good. Only people like us, perhaps, are worth caring about. I was just going to say you have to believe or else. Believe this certain way. Okay. Believe or else. Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. Okay. As well as we might say some of the things that we heard in the story that was just told. I think we could just repeat all of the things that were shared uh, from that story. And if you think of more, just shout it out, you know, in the middle of whatever I'm saying. That's fine. Allegiance to country trumps and everything else. Oh, well said. Well said. Well said. Thank you. Well, the ancient world, or more precisely, the first century world of our text, had certain uh, assumptions or values as well. And if you exemplified or represented those values, you would be honored. If you did not exemplify these values, you suffered loss of honor, or what you might call shame. You would, you would be shamed. It was, in what many, it was in many ways what cultural anthropologists call an honor-shame culture. And this insight was very helpful for me as I was wrestling with what's happening here in this text, in these Beatitudes that Jesus is speaking in his Sermon on the Mount. And these Beatitudes have been widely admired across religious, political, and social realms. People as diverse as Jimmy Carter, Gandhi, and Sting have all quoted these sayings of Jesus. Dallas Willard notes, along with the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm, and the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes are acknowledged by almost everyone to be among the highest expressions of religious insight and moral inspiration. And yet Kurt Vonnegut says, for some reason the most vocal Christians among us never seem to want to mention the Beatitudes. But often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. He says, of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. <laughs> and so, yet despite their widespread sort of acclaim as being good things, there's also some disagreement about what Jesus is actually saying here. Is Jesus commending certain behaviors or statuses? Is he telling us to aspire to be people who are meek or who are mourning? Is he stating that these folks will simply be blessed in the next life, in heaven? 
Is Jesus saying, if you become these things, then you now qualify for being blessed. One commentator notes that there are at least 36 discrete views about the Beatitudes. It always makes it easy for a preacher, right? Well, there's just got to be one clear thing happening here. But for me, uh, it was this insight into the honor-shame culture of the ancient world that helped give me a little bit of clarity, perhaps, on what Jesus is saying and doing and the impact that might have had upon his hearers in their context. In a work entitled Honoring the Dishonored, the Cultural Edge of Jesus' Beatitudes, uh, Jerome Nere, a professor of the University of Notre Dame, notes that the word makarios which is the word in the Greek, which we often translate as blessed or blessed, or sometimes you'll see it translated happy, such as blessed are the meek or happy are the meek, that word could also be rendered esteemed or honored. Esteemed or honored. And this, I think, is a crucial insight Because if Jesus is honoring these people or noting that these are the kind of people that God esteems, it's worth noting, what did their culture esteem? What did their culture honor? Well, in some ways, their culture was a lot like ours. Having a high social status was valued. And you often got high social status through wealth and power. Or perhaps you had that status... uh, You inherited it by being a part of the right group or the right family. And glory was also valued, the sort of glory that could happen through um, violence, bravery in battle, that sort of thing. And in fact, there were times uh, in the Roman Empire, if there wasn't a military campaign going on, of course, that they would create violent games in which you could then prove your glory. So status, wealth, power, and glory, among other things, were high values in the ancient world. But of course, it wasn't just enough just to be wealthy. You had to show it off. Plutarch noted, with no one to look on, wealth becomes sightless and bereft of radiance. In other words, why have wealth if you're not going to display it if you're not going to show it off. And so elites would claim honor through the display of their table setting and the manner in which they dined. And this is Plutarch again. He says, for when the rich man dines with his wife or his intimates, he lets his table of citrus wood and his golden beakers rest in peace, and he uses common furnishings. And his wife attends it without her gold and purple and dressed in plain attire. So this is just a, you know, if they're just having a meal, right? They're just having breakfast or a meal, just the husband and wife. Then they don't get out all the, all the good stuff. He says, but when a banquet that is a spectacle in a show is got up and the drama of wealth brought on, then out of the ships he fetches the urns and tripods, the repository of the lamps are given no rest, the cups are changed, the cupbearers are made to put on new attire, nothing is left undisturbed, gold, silver, jeweled plate, the owners thus confessing, he says, that their wealth is for others. That was kind of an interesting little insight. We worked so hard to have all this wealth, and we noted perhaps one of the things in the story, that wealth equals happiness. I think our own happiness. 
And you know, it's yet they go through all of that simply to show others. If that's the value the society holds, I want to show that I'm in the proper place in society. And wedding feasts also, for example, were excellent times for families to put on a public display of whatever they had. And if you ran out of wine at a wedding, for example, that was a case of dishonor or shame. And we see a story like that in Scripture where Jesus is at a wedding and they run out of wine. And rather than let them experience the shame and the dishonor of that, Jesus does what he does. Josephus notes that clothing and presentation of self also mattered. And speaking of one uh, particular um, aristocrat, he says, everyone in the city could see the symbols of honor, gold necklace, elegant clothing, and proud mount. That is, if you had a nice horse, you rode that thing around, you rode it proudly, and you wore the clothes that were befitting a person that society would honor and would look well upon. It's not too hard to think about how that might translate to us, you know. I haven't ridden my nicest horse lately, but, uh, you know, keep an eye out for that. And so value, uh, a value is not only put on being wealthy, but as William Herzog puts it, conspicuous consumption and displays of wealth were also a value. It wasn't just enough to be wealthy, you had to show it off. Now we might imagine that many in Jesus' audience were far from wealthy, they were not generally among the elites, so perhaps they were already losers in the honor game. Yet historians of the ancient economy remind us that wealth in antiquity also resided in land. And many of Jesus' hearers could have been landowners or landowners in recent memory. And not only uh, was land a way to have honor, but as we noted, also via one's family. Philosopher Aristotle wrote, the good birth of an individual, which may come either from the male or the female side, implies that both parents are free citizens and that the founders of the line have been notable for virtue or wealth or something else which is highly prized. And so maybe you didn't have a lot of material wealth, but at least you owned some land. Or maybe you were born into the right family and there was a cultural legacy or memory of that family being a significant family in your community. And so you still held up those pieces of honor. A number of New Testament scholars note that there were likely four original blessings or beatitudes rather than the longer list here we see in Matthew. And these scholars note that Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, which also has the Sermon on the Mount, both get these from the document Q. Anyone familiar with Q? Anyone never heard of Q? All right. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but Q, so uh, as the Gospels are being written, Mark is the earliest Gospel, and it's believed by scholars that Matthew and Luke, who wrote a little bit later Gospels, were working off of Mark's manuscript, as well as another document, a common document to Matthew and Luke, called Q, which is Q from the German Coella, which means source. So that's just a little New Testament background there for you. And we see a little vestige of this in Luke's Gospel, because in his version of the Beatitudes, there are only four. And scholars think perhaps these were the original four, and listen to these as Luke presents them. Blessed are you who are poor, 
for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the phrase missing there. Luke doesn't say poor in spirit. He just says poor. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Notice he doesn't say you who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. Just blessed are you who hunger now. Those of you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. Third, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Weeping right there with mourning. And then fourth, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So you notice the difference? There's a real physicality to these things. As Luke tells them, right? We can't get away with merely spiritualizing these Beatitudes. And so it's helpful to remember that Jesus lived among people who often were lacking these very physical, basic things. He was living among and was himself one who was poor. People who were hungry, who did wonder often where their next meal was going to come from. And as we noted, some of these perhaps were landowners in recent memory and some still, but because of the heavy taxation and oppressive realities of the Roman Empire and the economy they brought, many of these landowners were now former landowners who had to sell what they had. Some of these family properties that had been in their families for a long time, they had to sell these off. Now they're working their own land for someone else and barely able to live off it at subsistence level. You can imagine the honor they once held is gone. And they now are experiencing being shamed. And many folks were weeping because of these difficult changes in their lives. And many also had memories of violence happening at the hands of the state in their own families. No doubt friends of Jesus from his youth in Nazareth had family members killed in Roman crackdowns in nearby Sepphoris, less than a day's walk away. That happened as Jesus is growing up. Hundreds killed, executed, crucified because they dared oppose the empire. And then some of these folks are now starting to follow Jesus. And that's creating tensions in their families. And perhaps they're being excluded from their family circles. They're being excluded, insulted, and shamed. And now their own families won't recognize them. And so even their own families have said, we do not honor you. You are shamed. And so these are people, in many cases, who are down to nothing. The bottom of the bottom. And to each of these groups, Jesus says, blessed are you. I see you, and I honor you. God sees you, and God honors you. God esteems you. In a culture of honor and shame, these words are life. These words are life. And so I don't think Jesus is setting up categories necessarily for us to aspire to as much as simply saying to the folks in his audience, the wider culture may be writing you off. Maybe even your friends and your families have written you off and turned their backs on you, but I have not and God has not. And when you talk this way these days, 
some folks will say, well, that's starting to sound like liberation theology. Well, the founder of liberation theology, Gustavo Gutierrez, noted that his theology was founded on two specific beliefs. One, that God loves all persons equally and gratuitously. God loves everyone across the board equally. Two, God loves the poor preferentially. How does that work? If you're trying to do the math, that feels confusing, right? Feels a little, God loves everyone equally, but the poor preferentially. How does that work? Well, these two ideas do appear contradictory, but an honest look at the world and the pervasive poverty that abounds quickly reveals that for God to refuse to take sides would actually benefit the wealthy minority. Does that make sense? History is filled with examples of social conflict from Jesus' time all the way to today, including today. History is filled with examples where a majority of human beings are systematically exploited and denied dignity by a powerful minority. Therefore, a neutral God in this situation who refuses to take sides would actually be serving the interests of the privileged. If God's love does not actively work to transform the unjust status quo, then God's neutrality, disguised as equal love for all people, can only legitimize the injustice. A neutral position then becomes impossible. Equal love gets manipulated into a passive stance that benefits the powerful minority. And so Gutierrez's primary starting place in his liberation theology is that God has a preferential option for the poor. And that Christians should as well. So if someone accuses me of that, I'll say, oh, great. Happy to, happy to claim that. And so Jesus is saying to these folks who are at the bottom of the bottom, these folks who are feeling not only are they in a tough place living their lives, but here's the wider culture looking at you and saying, you're not worth anything. You're not worth anything at all. I can hardly think of more timely words. Our society, especially in recent days, is writing people off left and right. And so what would Jesus' Beatitudes sound like today? Blessed are you who are refugees, for you will inherit the earth. Blessed are you who are emigrating due to violence, for you will find safe haven. Blessed are you who cannot afford the health services you need, for you will be healed. Blessed are you who follow the teachings of Muhammad, for you will find refuge. Blessed are you who are gay, lesbian, and transgendered, for you will have equal rights. Blessed are you when men build walls to keep you out, for you will be welcomed in. Blessed are you who tell the truth, for you shall be heard. Blessed are you when people insult you for following me in a way that they don't understand or agree with, for your Father in heaven sees you and esteems you. 
Blessed are you who don't speak English as a first language, for the kingdom of heaven speaks the language of love. Blessed are you who are undocumented, for your citizenship is not in doubt in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are poor, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. To all who are feeling left out, hurt, marginalized, at risk, discouraged, brokenhearted, Jesus says, I see you. I honor you. I love you. And God sees you. And God honors you. And God loves you. And if Jesus sees and honors these people and gives his life on their behalf, I think the invitation to me, to us, as followers of his, is to do the same. Following Jesus has always been subversive, friends, but these days it is feeling more subversive than ever. And so may you and I have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to love, and hands to work for justice, for peace, for healing. And may you know that whatever society says about you, Jesus says, blessed are you. Amen. And namaste. to Carissa, Christy, and Scott for your musical contributions today. After the service, you're welcome to stick around, have some coffee and a treat, meet somebody new. There is a sign-up sheet out in the hall. If you'd like to get on our email list, you can sign up there. If you'd like to volunteer to help in some capacity, there's a sign-up sheet for that as well. You'll notice in the back of your folder, stuff happening, the usual, a couple of pup theology gatherings happening in Holland and Sagatuck and our Friday coffee time in our December listening circle coming up in a couple of weeks. And you can always follow us uh, via social media or our website to see the latest happening with us. And now as you go from this place, may you know that the world is too, too beautiful to be praised by only one voice. And so may you be inspired to sing your part. May you know that the world is too broken to be healed by only one set of hands. And so may you have the courage to use your gifts. And as you go, may the light of God shine upon you and in you and through you. And you are blessed. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.
you are invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Thank you.